So as Sarah mentioned, this is the fourth and final week of the Advent season, and I've had a lot of fun going through uh, the lectionary and teaching through some of these passages, and tonight I am especially excited. And for those of you that know me, you know that that is code for we are going to have an absolute nerd fest tonight, specifically with regard to the ancient Near Eastern historical context of the Old Testament. And God's people said a big howdy, amen, with a leg kick. So we're going to be in the book of Isaiah this evening. This is a passage that I'm sure you have heard, although when you approach it, I'm thinking that you read it through the lens not of Isaiah, but through the lens of Matthew. Okay, so this is Isaiah chapter 7, and I'm going to encourage us to go back in time a bit to the 8th century to hear these words perhaps for the first time. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, it says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The word of God for the people of God. One of my favorite things about Christmas are the new movies that come out. My family used to have this tradition where on Christmas Day we would be through all of the hubbub and through all the family and breakfast and presents and all that stuff and we would then make the annual trek down to Salisbury to go see a new movie. And this year I'm specifically excited about going to see Rogue One. Now I'm a Star Wars fan, but I'm not a Star Wars fan. Okay, there's a difference between the two. I've, in, I've watched and I've enjoyed the movies, but I haven't, um, you know, really gone too crazy. I'm not the person that dresses up, for example, to go see these movies. I thought I took this slide out, so my timing was off there, but I did see this meme a while ago, and I thought it was funny. <laughs> Apologies to girls in boots with vests. Okay. Um, so I, I'm excited to go see Rogue One and to see what's going on here. But if you're not a Star Wars junkie, you need to understand where this movie fits in the overall plot line of the story. So I also saw this online at some point. Where does Rogue One fit into the landscape and the storyline of Star Wars? Okay, now some people, the real fans, might say you don't necessarily even have to think about episodes one, two, and three because they weren't necessarily received with too much critical acclaim. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate that. But we have seen, most of us anyway, episodes four, five, and six. I'm glad that my wife's not here this evening because I get to say things like she has never seen any episode of the Star Wars movies. And I guess you're thinking that's kind of my fault. Well, yeah, I should introduce that into our home. But here we have Rogue One and it takes place here in between episode three and episode four. And I guess the plot is basically these people are trying to 
get plans to understand about the Death Star. Okay, I'm showing my cards here that I'm not a super fan, but there are certain things you need to know. If you don't know this going in, if you don't know what happens before, or if you don't know what's going to happen after, you might be a little bit lost. It'll stand on its own, and it could be watched, but understanding exactly where we're headed is important. Now, when we think about Isaiah chapter 7, here's my really neat segue, we usually just focus in on this line here that says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. But if you guys are being honest, when I launched into that bit about some kid eating curds and honey, you're like, "Mm, I've never heard that before. I don't really know quite what's going on here. And for us to understand this story, we have to not just go immediately to the birth of Jesus and think about Mary and Joseph in the stable and putting Jesus in the manger and that sort of thing, but we have to go back to the Syro-Ephraimite War. Okay, This is in the 8th century. This is around 734 BC. And in order to understand this, we even have to go back a little bit farther. So I've got my sweet little timeline up here that's going to help us plot these points within Old Testament history. Okay, you guys familiar with King David? Okay, some of you are, and for those of you who aren't, there was an important king in Israel's history named David. Now, David was granted the kingship after Saul, and he was granted the kingship as the Lord's anointed. He was a man after God's own heart, though if you read the story about David, he's kind of a a shady character. Okay, I would just implore you to go back and reread those stories. But here we have David, and the, the kingdom at this point is united. And the way that the biblical authors talk about this kingdom, it is vast and it's expansive, especially when David's kid Solomon gets to the throne. There's all sorts of beauty and riches within Israel, and this is around 1,000 or so BC. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is promised that his line will continue forever. The Davidic line will always be seated on the throne. But there's a caveat there. It's like, if you follow the Lord... Now, this is the problem because all throughout Old Testament history, these people did not necessarily follow the Lord, and it leads us to this moment where the kingdom is divided, and it's divided into two. Depending on what book of the Old Testament you're reading, when you hear the word Israel, that could be code for the northern tribes as opposed to the entire thing. Okay, so here we have Israel in the, in the north, and we have Judah in the south. Judah is home to Jerusalem, Bethlehem, all that sort of stuff, and Israel is up in the north, and there are two separate kingdoms with two separate kings and two separate places of worship and two separate everything. They're two separate political monstrosities. I'm struggling for words tonight, but they're two different empires, if you will. Now, empires is a stretch because they're kind of piddly on the grand scheme of things, but they're two different kingdoms with two different kings with two different things happening within them. Okay, so the story within the book of Kings is replaying what's going on in Judah and who's reigning and ruling and what's going on in Israel and who's reigning and ruling. Now, at some point, Israel in the north, they get destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, Okay, we'll talk a bit more about the Assyrian Empire in a moment. Later on in that history, though, Judah's still hanging on by a thread, and then they finally get destroyed by Babylon. There's a history that's specific to Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and yes, this is important for us understanding what's going on in Isaiah chapter 7, okay? Because at this time, when 8th century prophet Isaiah ben Amos is talking and prophesying, What's happening on the larger landscape around Israel and around Judah is a guy named Tiglath-Pileser III. 
or TP3, as I like to refer to him. He's this warrior king, right? So there's TP3 in the bottom left corner, and up here, if you can see it, this is um, a siege engine. The Assyrians were notable for their warfare. They were notable for the way that they could line up military people. I'm, I'm sorry, I, just, I should have had a mountain do this afternoon, I don't know, but they had all these ways of doing war and the most important was their siege warfare where they would build ramps up to the cities that they wanted to destroy. Most places in the ancient world, if they were worth their salt, they were ascended a bit so that you could take care of potential invaders. But what a siege warfare would do is they would build a ramp up to the wall that contained the city. And these siege engines, as you can see, they have like a little battering ram and they would run into the wall and the arm would go up and down to try to destroy the wall so that they could walk in and completely massacre the place, okay? I had a student a few years ago that I will say was not necessarily the most academic student, and he needed some extra credit towards the end of the year, so what he did was he built us a siege engine. It was about this tall, had a big old battering ram, it was on wheels, it was crazy. Just FYI. But for TP3, he was known and he was feared, and this is a person that you did not want to mess with at all. He, at the time, was more focused on the north. This is up way north of Israel and Judah, trying to establish his kingdom and make it big and vast. And in the midst of that, we have little old Israel and even little, 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 little. Smaller. Smaller. I'll just let, you know, let's get out there for you guys to help me out here. It's a joint effort this evening. Um, as even smaller old Judah, good gravy. Okay, now as this is happening, there's an anti-Assyrian coalition. When was the last time you were at church and you got to talk about the anti-Assyrian coalition? Okay, Israel in the north was led by a guy named Pekah. And in the north of Israel, an area named um, Damascus Okay, or Aram, or Syria. It's got all kinds of different names. But a leader named Rezin. These two people were in cahoots saying like, we don't like TP3 and we do not like what he is about to do to our kingdom. So we need to form an alliance so that when he shows up, we can actually withstand our ground and hopefully ward off any potential invasions. And this is the setting of Isaiah chapter seven. Back to verse one, it says, when Ahaz, he's the king in the south, in Judah, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, that's the Damascus area, that's the Syria, not Assyria, but the Syria area in the north, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, they marched up to fight against Jerusalem. So we have Syria, and we have Israel in cahoots, and they are marching against Israel. But, and this is where I inserted this, this is not in the Bible, spoiler alert here, but they could not overpower it, okay? This hasn't actually happened yet in the story, but the author has given us the, the ending of the story. So here we got one more map, and we have Damascus or Aram or Syria in the very north there, and that's... Um, 
Rezin's territory. And then the second circle is Israel there or Samaria, or if you're reading in your Old Testament, it might be called Ephraim because that's one of the major tribes in the north here. And this is Pekah's territory and they are in cahoots and they're trying to put pressure on Judah to say, you must join our anti-Assyrian coalition. And if you don't, we are going to boot you out of the out of the kingdom Ahaz and we're going to put our own dummy king on the throne because he will then cooperate with us so that we can get rid of the national power that is Assyria. You with me? So this is how this plays out in the the next few verses in Isaiah chapter 7. It says, now the house of David, and some people say this is important because it goes into this nationalistic language of the house of David. Remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, There will always be a Davidic king on the throne. Remember, Ahaz, this is bigger than you. This isn't just about you and the things that you see out on the periphery. This isn't just about the different political alliances that you can wheel and deal. There's something bigger going on here, Ahaz. Now, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. That means Syria and Israel have allied themselves together. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They hear what's going on in the larger geopolitical landscape and they are shook to the core. And Ahaz begins to try to figure out what in the world he is going to do now because there is pressure put upon him and his kingdom. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, share Jashub. This means, uh, in Hebrew, this means a remnant will remain all throughout Isaiah. This is, what is, this is what it's coming to. Whether it's the Assyrian uh, destruction of Israel or the Babylonian destruction of Judah, it's about a remnant that God would bring about and continue to work through in the midst of destruction. Now, this term is ambiguous here because it doesn't necessarily, uh, we don't know what to make of it because this is before any of the destructions have taken place. So some people would say that this might even be that there's just a remnant or a small few left of Assyria. Ahaz, if you trust me here, when Assyria comes against you or this anti-Assyrian coalition, whoever is, is against you, there will just be a remnant left because I got your back. So either way, he's going out, Isaiah and his son are going out to meet Ahaz, and it says they're going out at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. What? They're going to check on their water supply. Because remember, siege warfare, remember, they're trying to pen people up into their little cities. And remember, there's often not water in those cities. There's a, there's a text uh, later in the book of Isaiah and in 2 Kings, I believe, where it talks about the people that are penned up within their home and the people on the outside say, you're gonna have to drink your own urine and eat your own feces because there's no water coming in or coming out, okay? The high schoolers always loved reading that selection of text there. But they're going out to to check on their water because Ahaz is scared to death. And this is the message. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, resin and pica. Because of the fierce anger of resin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin. And again, that's just Syria and Israel. 
They've plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, divide it amongst ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Ahaz, your days are done, because if you're not going to follow us, we're going to get you out of here, and we're going to put Tabeel on the throne, because he will work with us. So again, we have Damascus and we have uh, Syria in the north and Israel that are putting pressure on Judah. And this is where we find ourselves in this text. However, at the end of this selection in, in Isaiah chapter seven, God says, it will not take place. The things that are concerning you, the fears that you have, it will not take place. It will not happen. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And what God is saying in this text is, Ahaz, stop being a bum. Listen to me, trust me, remember. Remember the promises. And now we come to our text here. And as we explore the text in Isaiah chapter 7, it's important for us to know that this is a world of immediate political uncertainty. When we take that text about the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and then we say, yeah, 700 later, Jesus is going to show up. That's great news, everybody. It is, except for... Ahaz and all of the people in that moment in time. This is a world of immediate political uncertainty and the word of the Lord addresses it because that is what prophecy is. So often we think that prophecy and the Old Testament prophets are just looking out there some 600 or 700 years later and Jesus is going to make all this stuff good. Yeah, but what about me? And for the Old Testament audience, it's important to see that these prophets, they had something to say about the people here and now because God cares about the people here and now. And I think that we could even dip into that a little bit and say, God cares about your here and now and where you are and what you're going through and the struggles that you have and the sieges that are coming up against your life. I really don't like reading the Old Testament that way, but stick with me. There's things and junk that you guys are going through as well. And I think the importance here that we see throughout scripture is God is involved in your life. Don't forget it. So we have all this background and now we come to our passage here. Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign. And now God's kind of ticked here. There's a, there's, a, there's a turn because Ahaz has demonstrated himself to be one that doesn't have a lot of faith or trust. And this is God saying, what? You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And Ahaz kind of backpedals and says, oh no, I don't want to put the Lord my God to the test. And then Isaiah steps in and says, bro, what in the world? Is it not enough to try the patience of humans and now you're going to test the patience of God? I'll give you a sign. The Lord's going to give you a sign. He will give you a sign. Now, there's some, we're going to talk about this sign. But the sign is here, according to the New International Version, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. One biblical scholar from Yale, uh, he has passed away a few years ago. He said, almost every word of the sign given in verses 14 and following is controversial. It's going to be fun, um, but we might, it might be difficult before we get there. I don't know why I'm dancing so much, guys, except I like the Old Testament. I like it a lot. There's a bunch of squiggles on the board that you don't really know what it means, but I'll tell you what it means. It, it's, it says Alma, which is a, a Hebrew word that has been translated in various ways. The NIV and the ESV, these are different translations of the Bible, they translate this as virgin. The virgin will conceive and in our context, when we hear the word virgin, we think certain things 
And yeah, we, we do. It's, it's about sexual purity here. Another way that you could think about this as the young woman. Now, those are two very different classifications because in one, you're thinking about sexual purity and another, you're thinking about the age of the woman. Okay? And perhaps the best way to translate this, and this is not just my idea, this is what scholars would say as well, is thinking about Alma as a woman of marriageable age. She is ready to become a wife. She's ready to become a mom as well. There's other words in Hebrew that are meant to connote the sexual purity of someone, batula. It means a, a virgin, but here we're thinking more of a woman of marriageable age. And now, guys, I have to say this. For some of you, you might have very strong traditional beliefs about a text, and I do not want to run roughshod over those, okay? So just stick with me on this as we think about these things. Now, rereading this text, it says the virgin or the young woman or the woman of marriageable age will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of what's happening here. The virgin or the young woman or the woman of marriageable age will conceive and give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, God with us, which is important in this context. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of these two kings that you dread will be laid to waste. The prophecy, the sign, the point for Ahaz in this particular context is God saying, there will be deliverance. There will be deliverance for you, and it will happen in your lifetime. This young woman, and some people would say it's, it's difficult to say who this young woman is. It could be any young woman, whoever's going to have a baby before that baby grows up to know the difference between right and wrong, and there's different ages put on this. The people that you're so worried about, they're going to be completely taken care of. Ahaz, don't worry about the coalition. Ahaz, don't give money to Tiglath-Pileser III and to Assyria. That was a threat here where he would say, well, if we just pay off Assyria, then they won't destroy us, but maybe they can destroy this other coalition and maybe we'll be okay. And eventually Ahaz actually did go this route. He wasn't the best king, but the message is don't trust Ahaz in earthly powers. Trust in me. Here's some Old Testament scholars and the things they have to say about this passage. I want you to hear this. Isaiah's promise about a girl having a baby whose birth would signify that God was with his people, that Emmanuel, in the midst of the crisis they were going through, was not a promise about something to happen in seven centuries' time. It was not something that was specifically about Jesus in the future and have no temporary significance. Nor was it a prophecy about a girl who would still be a virgin when she had her baby, nor about a baby who would turn out to be the very embodiment of God. No regular Jewish interpretation in Jesus's day would have understood the passage to refer to the Messiah. When people were reading Isaiah, they were not anticipating Jesus. 
Another scholar, this is Walter Brueggemann, he says two matters are clear from the Isaiah passage. One, the Isaiah passage per se has no interest in the virginal status of the woman. It is not interested because the focus is not on the woman, but on the child. And number two, the church's subsequent development of the interpretation of the virgin. That's where we step in. That's where we are hearing Matthew when we read this passage. It's a rich tradition, he says, but it cannot be said to be wrong, but it can be said to go in quite a fresh direction, surely other than the Isaiah text itself. Matthew takes this passage and goes in a completely new and fresh way that was not expected or anticipated by anyone in his time. Now, Let's try to make sense of all this stuff. You guys good with the Old Testament background, okay? We've had some few technical faux pas. I haven't been able to speak like a normal human being. Are you up to speed? Ahaz has this pressure of this anti-Assyrian coalition that's breathing down his neck. He is struggling with faith in God and God's message, but God says, I have a sign that the people that want to destroy you will be taken care of. And the sign will be a young woman will have a baby. And before that baby knows the difference between the good and the bad, they're going to be taken care of, okay? Now, before we go anywhere beyond this, I want to be very clear because we've just gone through a series on the Nicene Creed and one of the elements of the Nicene Creed is the the virgin birth of Jesus. So was Jesus born of a virgin? Absolutely, I believe that. I affirm that. I think that we collectively as a group probably do affirm that as well. I want to dip back into Isaiah's text and say, was Isaiah expecting a virgin to give birth? Probably not. But is this true of Jesus? Yes, and here's the text um, from another lection in this week's reading. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, this is how adults talk about sex when their kids are in the rooms. Before they came together, it's like euphemistic. Um, it says she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And I always do like around this time just to think about how that conversation would have gone with Mary and Joseph. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And understand that Joseph would have had his back up against the wall here a little bit because now he was entering into a marriage with someone who might have been in the eyes of the public deemed to be an adulteress. This was a a dicey situation for all parties involved. It says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here Matthew is just quoting, in a sense, Isaiah. Last section here. When Joseph woke up, he did not, or he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. For Matthew, Jesus changes everything. 
And this is what we've talked about time and time again. He could no longer look back at these stories in the Old Testament and see Isaiah without seeing them through the lens of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And when he hears this story again, perhaps, in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it begins to click for him. It begins to click for him because he is now hearing about a nation, God's people, Judah, that is feeling the heat from this anti-Assyrian coalition. It's breathing down their neck and they're just wondering what is going on. And God says, trust me, I will deliver you. And now here we see Jesus as the one who will and has delivered God's people in a way that goes well beyond this story in Isaiah chapter 7. For Matthew, Jesus changes everything and he begins to see the entire Old Testament through the lens of what Jesus has done. But I would also say that in order to fully understand Matthew, it helps to understand Isaiah and his context, okay? So here we have the sign of a child, and for Matthew, there is a sign of a child, and that child is Jesus. We also have a time of political uncertainty where the Jewish people were being oppressed by Rome. This was a time when it was not necessarily uh, inviting for them, but they were always under someone else's rulership, This was a time when they needed God to intervene. It was a time of political uncertainty. They had a need for divine deliverance. They had a need for divine presence. They had a need for someone who was God with us to be in our midst, in the midst of our own suffering and persecution and oppression. And they needed to have this message of trust because back in the Old Testament, Ahaz was trying to go about things in his own way. He was checking on the water. He was doing this and that. He was trying to align himself with TP3. He was trying to make the right political alliances so that they wouldn't be destroyed. And God's saying, stop. Trust me. Remember the promises. And here when we back up and we see this, this text in light of what Jesus has done for us, that same message, I believe, is important. Trust what God is doing and trust that God is working in our midst today through Jesus who has become God with us. When we take this text from from Isaiah, and I don't think this is what Matthew was doing, and we take that one line, and for us we become fixated, and do not misunderstand what I'm saying here, but when we become fixated on the virgin birth, I think that we miss the larger context of Isaiah chapter 7. Political uncertainty, a need for divine deliverance, a continued message of trust in God and what God is doing. I think that when we reduce that to Jesus was born of a virgin, we fail to see the important bits within that passage that goes on to say, he will save us from our sins. He will deliver us. I also think it's worth noting, and again, I don't want you to mishear me. We have four stories of Jesus' life recorded in the New Testament. And of those four stories, two of them talk about the way that Jesus was born. All four of them talk about his loving sacrifice for us. All four of them talk about the way that he has destroyed evil and sin and death. All four of them talk about his glorious resurrection that allows us to have life. All four of them invite us in as participants to work with God 
restoring the world to what it should be. I hope that however we read this text in Isaiah, however we read this text in Matthew, that we don't just reduce it to bits of trivia about how Jesus came into the world, but I hope that we begin to explore why he came into the world so that he can identify with us, but so that he can also put to death, death, and how he has allowed us to experience that goodness here And now, in the midst of Advent, where we wait, and we wait in the midst of tension, and we wait in the midst of suffering and persecution, and we wait in the midst of sickness and disease and brokenness, and we wait in the midst of emotional difficulties and financial distress, and we wait for Jesus, King Jesus, to return and to make everything right again. That is the beautiful good news of the gospel, and that is what God is begging us to trust in this evening. Do not forget, in the midst of the busyness, in the midst of all the things that we're going through, that good message that Jesus has offered us life and hope and forgiveness. And all we have to do is receive it.